the Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Three, Hunger Season. Chapter 16, A Suspect in the Hand. Good Lord, Simmons, gasped Landers. You're not suggesting that Earl was the one who started that fire, are you? Earl always had a cranky streak, I'll admit, but he'd never do anything like that. Oh, my God, Edith, exclaimed Candace. She pushed through the crowd of gawkers and mourners at the front porch. She pushed her way into the living room. When she saw Edith dead in the easy chair, she stopped, stunned. Stuba, we've got to get that door closed, said Berg. I've tried to respect people's desire to pay their respects, but this crowd is getting out of hand. How could this happen? Candace demanded. Edith was so... Her voice broke as she began to cry. Candace and Edith go way back, Berg whispered to Martin. Guess they've been friends since their days at Pinkerton. Maybe you could go get some sheets or something to drape over them. Martin nodded and hurried down the hall to what he assumed would be bedrooms. In the first bedroom, he saw two sleeping bags in some disarray on a double bed. The Altmans had set up camp in the smaller guest room since it was nearer the wood stove. Martin rummaged among the folded bedding on the top shelf of a closet. He tried to pull out just two flat sheets, but managed to pull over a pile of blankets. The whole stack tumbled to the floor. As he picked up the sheets, he noticed a tidy line of men's shoes in the closet floor. They seemed so small compared to the boots Earl was wearing in the living room. Martin studied a few pair. Size eight, size eight and a half. Martin helped Berg drape a yellow sheet over Edith's body. Stuba was having difficulty getting the people herded out of the front door. The crowd on the porch wasn't making room. I can't believe they would do anything so foolish, Candace ranted. As Berg and Martin draped a sheet over Earl, Martin stooped to get a closer look at the boots. They were clearly much larger than size eight and a half perhaps twelve or thirteens. Well, if it's any comfort, Candace, Berg said, I don't think it's as simple as an accident. What in the world do you mean by that? she demanded. Mrs. Altman had some marks on her throat, and we think <gasps> someone killed her, Candace shrieked. I didn't say that, said Berg, eh, but it was too late. The people at the door heard what Candace said. They passed it back like wildfire through the rest of the crowd. Shouts of shock and outrage punctuated the roar. Berg, Landers, and Stuba tried to maintain some order, but with little success. Death was no stranger to Cheshire lately, but they had been tragic accidents, except for those killed by the Azule's gang. The thought of a murderer in their midst rekindled the anger and fear left over from the gang killings. Within a few minutes, a knot of people could be seen pushing and dragging a man to the Altman's house. Martin took advantage of the distraction outside to get a word in to Berg. Uh, Chief, something else is wacky here. I don't think those are Earl's boots. What? Berg was clearly not paying attention. Could I take off one of his boots? Martin asked. Berg nodded. Martin looked inside the tongue of the boot. Size 14? What? Candace interrupted. Earl doesn't wear, didn't wear shoes that big. 
"'I didn't think so,' said Martin. "'His closet is full of eights and eight and a half. The crowd thrust a big man through the front door. He landed on the carpet. "'Ask him where he was last night,' said one of the men who pushed the man in. Martin recognized him as the man who was arguing with Earl in front of the selectman's table at the last meeting. He was the angry neighbor. "'I don't know nothing about this,' protested the man. "'You've been fighting with Earl for over a week now,' said another man. "'Earl said you were stealing his firewood.' "'I wasn't stealing anyone's firewood,' pleaded the man. "'Earl found some of his birch in your pile,' said another man. "'Looks like stealing to me.' "'I don't know how that birch got on my pile. "'I got plenty of my own oak, "'which burns way better than Earl's stinking old birch. "'Why would I steal it?' "'Heard you say you'd teach him a lesson,' said the first man. "'Heard it plain as day.' "'That's just talk,' said the accused neighbor. "'I was mad at him, but I'd never kill anyone.' "'Candace pointed to the man's shoes. "'He wears big shoes.' The men who hauled in the neighbor looked at Candace with impatient confusion. "'Earl wears a size eight, Candace said with grand auditorium voice. "'Someone put big boots on Earl. I think the killer did that. What size shoes does he wear?' she demanded. "'Now hold on,' Berg tried to insert himself between the accused man and the crowd, but he was no match for them. The mob pulled up one of the man's legs, sending him toppling to the floor. Many hands pulled and ripped at his shoe. One of them handed it to Candace. They released the man's leg. He scrambled to his feet, back to the wall. Size 14, Candace announced with great pomp. The boots that someone put on Earl are size 14. She held the man's shoe and a boot from Earl out for the mob to see. "'It was him!' shouted one of the mob. They rushed at the man, punching, ripping at his clothes. Berg tried to intervene, but was lost in the quicksand of flailing arms. Stuba fired two shots into the ceiling. Indoors, a forty caliber round is deafening. Everyone was silent. "'Now, everyone, just hold on!' shouted Berg. You can't tear this man apart just because you wear size 14s. Berg had regained control. This man is under arrest as a suspect for the murders of Edith and Earl Altman. He will be held, charged, and stand trial. We are not the gangs of Manchester. Let's haul him up to the jail, shouted one of the mob. Amid shouts of agreement, the mob pulled the man out of the door. They pushed and kicked at him as they pulled him up the driveway. Berg led the way, not so much in command as riding the wave. Landers leaned over to Martin. It's getting bad out there, Simmons. Ah, we had a big fight up by North Pond a few days ago, and a bunch of people from the lakes has been attacking houses on the north side. People are starting to crack. I'm surprised the mob didn't tear that man limb from limb. Oh, what do we do? Martin wondered out loud. I'm not sure said Landers. But right now, I'd say we need to have a trial, and quickly. They may demand blood. At the mention of a trial, Martin's heart sank. Oh, no, he thought. That means we're gonna need a defense lawyer, said Landers. Oh, no, 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 Martin waved at the thought. You talked me into that the first time. 
And you did great, Simmons. Ah, you really did. Yeah, don't try to butter me up. I can't defend this man. I don't know anything about him or, or any of this. The mob is liable to turn on me. Ah, that's just it, Simmons, said Landers with a worried look. We've darn near got a mob on our hands already. If we don't show some firm law and order, and very soon, we may all be facing angry mobs. As bad as you think defending that guy might be, letting it turn into a pack of wolves will be worse for everyone. Martin collapsed onto the sofa. It had already been a long and exhausting day. Why were there only bad choices, he wondered. He rubbed his dry eyes with the palms of his hands. The sight of two bodies beneath the sheets were a sober reminder of the stakes. I hate to rush tough jobs, began Landers, but I think we need to do this guy's trial tomorrow before things get a chance to boil over. And what happens when he's found guilty? Landers shook his head. If, you mean. Still, it could get grim. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, be up at town hall at uh, three o'clock for the arraignment. You're really presuming I'll do it. You know what a rock and a hard place feels like as well as I do, said Landers with a tired smile. Martin knocked on Chief Berg's office door at the basement of Town Hall. Come in. Ah, oh, Simmons. He's in the holding cell. Uh, good luck with that one. When Berg opened the door to the dark hallway, a stream of grumbling and epithets flowed out of the corridor. Martin flicked on his LED lantern. A woman sat on a folding chair in front of the cell door. She had a small LED light of her own. Who are you? she asked. It was half a challenge, half plea. In the dim blue-white light, she looked like someone wearing zombie makeup. Dark circles ringed her eyes. She had sunken cheeks and thin, colorless lips. Her hair looked gray in the cold light. It was probably blonde. Her hair hung in matted ropes around her face. Martin guessed she was in her early thirties, but the past few months of hunger had aged her hard. I'm uh, Martin Simmons. I've been appointed his defense counsel. I don't need no stinking defense, ranted the man in the cell. They can't prove nothing. You're all a pack of stinking jerks who can all rot in hell. You're here to help Cameron, she asked. Don't need anybody's help, shouted Cameron. I didn't do anything. Martin had little sympathy for Cameron. He seemed content to shoot holes in his own boat. The man's wife had a pitiful look of fear. Martin decided he would talk to the wife instead. He motioned her to one side. In a little while, your husband will be arraigned on murder charges. If he pleads not guilty... Damn right not guilty! I didn't do a damn stinking thing! You can tell them all to rot in hell! Martin continued. If he pleads not guilty, he'll go to trial. The evidence is pretty circumstantial, but it points to him as the killer. People are really upset these days hungry, scared. The boots on Earl are those of the barn burner. People are really angry about that, too. The attack on the dairy was an attack on them all. Those aren't my boots, shouted Cameron. I told you a hundred times, they are not my boots. It's not a crime to have size 14 shoes. Martin ignored Cameron and addressed the wife. If a jury of those angry people decides he's guilty, I'm afraid they'll demand an immediate execution. 
The woman gasped and shook her head in refusal. I can't promise anything. I'm not some whiz-bang lawyer with legal tricks up his sleeve. I'm just a guy fulfilling a legal requirement. That said, is there anything you could tell me that would prove his innocence? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? bellowed Cameron. Stinking jerks! What happened to acting like a rational adult instead of a bratty child? Martin shouted back. If you want to indulge in this childish tantrum and get yourself executed, then fine by me. Martin turned to go. I've got enough troubles of my own to deal with. He had made his mind up to leave. It had already been a very long day. No, wait, please, the gaunt woman pulled at his arm with weak, bony fingers. What can we do? Her deep-set eyes looked desperate. Martin wondered. If Cameron was fool enough to get himself killed, he asked for it. But what would become of this poor woman? Martin's posture collapsed. Is it possible to have sympathy for a zombie? He sat in a second folding chair, letting out a tired sigh. She sat in the chair across the hallway. Cam couldn't have done it. He was with me all yesterday and last night. Well, no offense, but a jury probably won't put too much stock in a wife's word. They'll figure a wife will say anything to protect her husband. The woman frowned. She had played her best card. Let's start with the motive part, Martin said. A whole room full of people heard your husband threaten Earl. What was that all about? The woman stared at her nervous hands as she thought. Back about a week ago, Cam went out to the shed to get something. I don't remember what now. He noticed that the hasp had been pulled off, but pushed back in place. The only thing missing, that Cam could tell, was a pruning saw. It was Earl's. Cam borrowed it back in August to trim some trees. He broke the handle, and Cam was going to fix it. When all this outage stuff happened, Cam figured that Earl got impatient and broke into our shed to get his saw. Cam was mad that Earl broke the hasp instead of just asking for it. Oh, Earl got really mad, too. He said he didn't take the saw and accused Cam of making up the story so he could keep the saw. Oh, they were yelling at each other in the backyard. It was awful. A couple of days later, Earl found some of his firewood on our wood pile. He has birch. Oh, we don't burn birch. Earl accused Cam of stealing his firewood. Uh, Cam called him a liar. They were yelling at each other again. Uh, the next day, Cam saw that the hinges to the shed were broken. He had put the hasp back on with big bolts, but whoever it was broke the hinges instead. What was missing this time? Martin asked. Oh, mostly little stuff that didn't matter. What did matter was Cam's hunting gear. He had his camo coat, bibs, boots, cap, and stuff in a box out there so it wouldn't get people smells. Anyhow, he was really mad. That's when he went up to town hall to make him do something about it. Hmm. Did you hear anything last night? Martin asked. Oh, things are so quiet nowadays. I did hear some men's voices around ten o'clock, but I couldn't make out what they were saying. It was too muffled. Where was your husband? Asleep, holding my hand. I was in bed with bad cramps. Oh, well, about these voices. You said men's voices? Were there two, three, more? Were they just talking, or what? The wife thought for a while. 
maybe two. They sounded angry, but it didn't last long. Earl can be a little hot-headed sometimes, so I didn't think much of it. Assuming that what you've told me is true. I, it is. I swear it is. That's all I can tell you, though. Cam fell asleep in the chair beside the bed. I couldn't sleep, but I, I didn't hear anything else all night. Okay, so someone else killed the Altmans, then set things up to look like they died of monoxide, heating up their last can of soup. Last can of soup? She tilted her head. The Altmans had lots of food. They were sharing some with us, since we had nothing. I'd seen their pantry. They were like food hoarders or something. But once Cam and Earl started fighting, you know, they stopped sharing. Hmm. When I looked around the Altman's house, there was nothing but empty boxes. We don't have any of their food. You can search our house. You won't find anything. Martin realized that if Cameron was the burglar killer, an empty house wouldn't prove anything. He could have hidden the food elsewhere. Yet the woman had a desperate sincerity about her. Perhaps it had been a robbery that went wrong. But why the elaborate cover-up? Martin had a reasonable doubt that Cameron might not have committed anything more serious than flagrant immaturity, but would a jury? Martin warmed two portions of wheat mush on the wood stove. Dustin stirred a pinch of sugar into his pine needle and wintergreen tea, clinking the spoon noisily. "'Shh!' Martin whispered. "'Your mom was up late working on her lesson plans.' "'Well, sorry,' Dustin whispered back. "'She's still gonna do her class thing? "'Won't these folks be too upset over the deaths to want to learn about cooking pine bark?' "'That's what I said.' but she thinks they'll appreciate the distraction, Martin said. He handed Dustin his cup of wheat mush. Thanks. Oh, yeah, that Mrs. Bain woman stopped by yesterday while you were in town. She said she'd be over this morning, bringing over her filter cone for the new gasifier. What? She said it would take several days. Don't know what to tell you, Dustin said, licking the mush off his fingers. She said she got done early. Oh, shoot, Martin muttered. Oh, I thought you'd be happy she was done early. Well, I am about that, Martin said. We can get started sooner. Oh, Dustin said knowingly. You don't want to be here when she brings it. Nope, that's why I'm trading patrols with you. What, really? I thought you had to be up to town hall for the trial and stuff. They'll still have to gather up a jury pool. That'll take them a half a day easy. Won't be picking jurors until noon. Plenty of time to get in a patrol. Say hi to Mrs. Bain for me, uh, but don't make it sound too friendly like I really wished I could have been there, or, or not too dismissive like, oh, hi, hey, whatever. Just, you know, middle-of-the-road kind of high. Dustin chuckled. Well, middle-aged drama can be so cute. Martin varied the patrol route, extending farther north, then looping down to the frozen swamp pond at the gravel pit. He saw no fresh people tracks in the snow. There were some rabbit tracks and a coyote trail meandering through the trees. The ice on the pond wasn't firm enough to support a person yet. 
he circled around through the brush that lined the edge. The little huts of Utopia sat silently beneath hats of snow. The pre-dawn air was still, so it stung less on the nose and cheeks. He followed the little river as it left the pond, looking for signs of anyone crossing over. Out of the corner of his eye, he noticed a slight movement in the trees across the river and to the left. He pretended not to have noticed. Following the gently gurgling river, he stopped periodically to check on some rocks or a bush. In reality, he was stealing another glimpse at his eight o'clock. Peripheral vision has no focus for detail, but it was clear that someone was paralleling his movements. That must be you, Mara, he thought. Worried I'll come over on your side? Martin had no intention of antagonizing her by invading her neck of the woods. He realized she couldn't know his intentions, so it was only prudent of her to monitor a possible intruder. She wasn't making any trouble for him, and he had no desire to cause any trouble for her either. Where the fire trail met the river, there were earthen embankments that stood eight feet above both sides of the water. They were the leftovers of a low-budget wooden bridge lost long before Martin moved to Cheshire. The footpath of the fire trail followed down the gentler slope to a crossing of stepping stones, then up to the opposite embankment. All Martin saw at the ford were prints from Dustin, Judy, or Carlos's boots. An older print, partially filled in with light snow, was clearly one of Susan's. He felt stupid, staring at an old footprint and recalling her face, her laugh, and her last words to him. A click startled him. He spun around in the direction of the sound. Standing atop the far embankment, with no concealment, was Mara. She had on her fox and fisher fur boots. She wore a shaggy cape made up of several coyote pelts. A wide, floppy hood of fox covered her head down to her eyes. Her long, dark hair lay in fans across the coyote cape. She stood motionless, staring at Martin as he knelt beside the river. He couldn't see her eyes so much as he could feel them. Whoa, Martin thought. I never thought she'd let herself be seen in the open like that. Wondering if exposure was a nonverbal social gesture, he stood up slowly, with his hands clearly visible, a reciprocal nonverbal gesture. He meant her no harm and wanted her to know that. He stood, staring up at her, thinking that his move ought to have invited some response. Seeing none, he made another. Ah, uh, hi, Mara? He hoped he sounded non-threatening or moderately friendly. She said nothing, nor made any moves whatsoever. Uh, glad to see you're doing okay. It was lame conversation, and he knew it. He had no idea what one is supposed to say to a cave woman. Mara took several slow steps backward to where Martin could only see her head above the edge of the embankment. She stopped. After a long pause, she motioned with her spear, as if to invite him across the river. You, uh, want me to cross the river? She raised her spear, then repeated the beckoning motion. Oh, this is totally weird. What does she want? He tried not to take his eyes off her while stepping across the stones, but the rocks were too unstable. When he looked up, she was farther up the fire trail, still in plain sight. He climbed the embankment and stood on the edge. She stared back at him, motionless, fifteen yards away. Did you need something? He started walking toward her. 
She quickly backed up several steps, maintaining the fifteen-yard buffer. She swung her spear horizontally. Oh, uh, okay, N no closer. Uh, I get that. Then why did you ask me across the river? Mara repeated her beckoning motion and turned to walk down the trail. She looked over her shoulder to see if he was following. Martin stood where he was, still wondering what she was up to. She stopped after several steps, then repeated the beckon. Well, you don't talk any more? So I guess you want me to follow you. Is that it, Mara? Follow you to where? Martin didn't like being drawn farther from home, but was intrigued. Her buffer zone was both assurance for her and a gesture of assurance for him. Nonetheless, he subtly felt for the grip of the carbine on his back, just to make sure it was well-seated and ready. Mara stepped off the trail to the right, into the woods. She moved with a fluidity through the bare brush stems and craggy branches. Martin had to keep a brisk pace to keep up with her. He eventually got onto her trail, following her carefully so as to maintain her fifteen-yard buffer. He could tell she had traveled that trail many times. Occasional side trails slanted off through the woods. You're not going to that housing development, but there's nothing else over here. Martin could make out the backs of colorful houses in the distance. The woods would end soon. The highway was close. Mara stopped at the edge of the woods and held her spear up over her head. Martin took that to mean he should stop. She crouched down between two small pines, looking first one way, then another. After a pause, she ran across the open highway to be swallowed up by a thicket of hemlock saplings on the other side. Martin approached the edge of the woods slowly. Was she waiting on the other side for him to cross? Was he supposed to run, too? He opted to simply walk across. He had no reason to be furtive. "'Where are you going, Mara?' he asked. He didn't expect an answer. The question was more of a vocal signal that he was getting close to the thicket. He pushed in slowly. Her trail led ahead and to the right. Fifteen yards up the trail stood Mara. She beckoned on. This trail was much less traveled. From the impressions, Martin guessed that you might have been this way only twice or three times before. The land gently sloped down. Oh, this leads down to the pond between Stockman Hill and Wilson Hill. Where are you going, Mara? Mara turned left off her trail. Martin followed her previous trail up to the point of her turn. She tapped her spear twice on a tree trunk to get his attention. He saw her pointing to the ground a yard or two down the slope. He saw nothing, so he shrugged. She repeated the spear pointing with a few jabbing motions and tracing back and forth, as if following a line. Martin followed the imaginary line toward himself. Squinting at the bright snow, he could barely make out the faint shadow of a monofilament line strung low between the tree trunks. Once clued in to the presence of the line, he could see that it ran from trunk to trunk, both to the left and to the right. Trip lines? Mara stepped over the trip line with exaggerated movements. Okay, I get it. Don't step on the line. After crossing the line, Mara moved slower down the slope, crouching and looking carefully toward the pond. Martin matched her movement, moving down the slope fifteen yards to her right. She stopped, crouching, nearly prone in the snow. She pointed down the slope with her spear. Mill Pond was fairly visible between the many bare trees. Mara 
slowly put snow on the top of her hood. Hmm, concealment, eh? What don't you want to be seen by? Are we hunting some animal? Martin matched her moves, putting snow on his gray stocking cap and the shoulders of his coat. He slung the carbine around and held it close to his chest. He squinted down at the pond, trying to see what she saw. There was nothing obvious. The longer he looked, however, small details began to stand out. The pond was partially frozen, but there was still open water in the middle. In the snow atop the ice, he could see a trail leading out to the open water. Oh, some animal comes here to drink? Are we hunting something? She slowly flattened herself against the snow, so Martin did the same. Suddenly, a man appeared on the little peninsula that pushed into the pond. He was a big man in a bulky gray parka. He seemed to come out of thin air. Silently, the man walked partway onto the ice and tossed something into the open water. He was a large man, so getting near the thin ice was a bad idea. While the man was focused on his task, Martin took the opportunity to scoot sideways so as to be behind a medium-sized oak trunk. He took out his little binoculars. Faint splashing sounds suggested that the man might be busy, so Martin slowly leaned out with the binoculars to his eyes. The man was reeling in a two-liter soda bottle on a string. He poured the contents into a bucket and tossed the bottle back in the water and let it sink again. A second man appeared out of nowhere on the peninsula. Martin turned his binoculars on the newcomer. He froze as the new man stood tall, stretched, and looked around the countryside. The man looked up the slope toward Martin, but apparently didn't notice him or Mara. It was the same goatee man that tried to abduct Mara. Is that why you led me here? You found him? The second man wore a coat and pants of some autumn camo. He was easy to lose sight of when he stopped moving in the brush of the peninsula. That's not what you were wearing when you tried to grab Mara. Are those Cameron's hunting clothes? A third man appeared. This time Martin saw him appear and then noticed what must have been the edge of a low, wide dome hut of forest debris. It was covered with snow, so it matched the surrounding ground. They had left a couple of young trees, their trunks poked up through the brambly dome. The trees made the hut look like nothing more than a small hillock. It was an invisible home. The third man was the little man from the shopping cart beggars that had harassed Nick. Two women emerged from the hut. Oh, it's the whole shopping cart gang. So this is where they went. They all had a good morning stretch, but made no sounds. The small man gathered some birch logs from a low random pile. One of the women gathered sticks. All five of the gang disappeared into the low hut. Mara didn't move a muscle until a faint thread of gray smoke filtered up through the tangle of branches at the center of the hut. She backed up the slope slowly, pausing frequently to make sure that no one had come back out of the hut. Once over the trip line, she stood up and pointed her spear toward the pond. Martin motioned for her to follow him back up to the highway. She stayed fifteen yards behind him. At the hemlock thicket, he turned to face her. Good job on finding him, Mara. That was the man that tried to take you. I think he's also involved in some other troubles. I'll need to go tell people so we can bring him in. She raised her spear in a victorious yes gesture. 
Martin turned to go, but stopped and looked back at her. Are you going to be okay? Do you need anything? She slowly moved her spear from side to side. Okay, well, if you do need anything, you know where I live. Martin pushed through the thicket and then jogged up the snow path as quickly as the uneven, slippery surface would permit. The Hendrick house was less than a hundred yards up the road. He wanted to get word to Landers and Berg as quickly as possible. Base 99, this is patrol, Martin keyed the mic. Patrol complete. Report later. Got something to deal with now. Wake Dustin. Have him fully equipped and send him to the trucker's house. ASAP. Over. Um, Roger. Uh, will do, Judy replied. Hey, Martin. Tyler opened the door to let Martin into the house. Here for your cut of our last coastal run, eh? Uh, not really, said Martin. I came to... I took the liberty of putting it in the smoker. Hope you don't mind. Tyler wasn't really listening as he led Martin through the mudroom and into the kitchen. I'm not here for the fish, uh, but thanks. I need to get word to Chief Berg as quickly as possible. Why? What's up? You look all excited. I am. There's a group of people with a hidden camp down on the edge of Mill Pond. No way. Well, yes way. I was just watching them from up on the slope, using my binoculars. Their hut is really well hidden. I think one of them might be involved in the death of the Altmans. Wowzers. Tyler leaned out the doorway to shout up the stairs. Hey, Charles, get down here. What's all the commotion in here? Mrs. Hendricks toddled in from the living room. Oh, Martin, it's you. Have a seat by the wood stove here and take your coat off. I'll get some real coffee. I know you like real coffee. And I have some lovely little oat biscuits that... Uh, that's okay, Mrs. Hendricks. I really can't stay. I was just looking to see if Tyler or Charles could... Yeah, somebody call my name? Charles sauntered into the kitchen. Uh, yeah, said Martin. Will your radio reach town hall? I need to get word to Chief Berg as quickly as possible. There's squatters in a hidden camp down by the mill pond, Tyler said. Wow, really? Are you sure? I've never seen any kind of... Yes, I'm sure, said Martin. I saw them with my binoculars, and I think one of them may be involved in the Altman murders. Murders? gasped Mrs. Hendricks. She pulled her apron up as if to hide behind it. Nah, my radio won't get over the hill, said Charles. I usually just ping Gene up at the top of the hill and he relays it. Okay, fine, whatever. Tell Gene to tell Berg that he needs to get over here to your house with a boatload of guys. But don't say so outright. I don't know if those squatters have a radio or a scanner or what. Don't want to tip them off. Hmm, Charles rubbed his chin. Urgent yet cryptic. Well, I'll see what I can do. He climbed the stairs, two at a time, to his optimal radio spot high in the house. Murders, whispered Mrs. Hendrick. She pushed an oat biscuit into Martin's hand. Oh, why a boatload of guys? Tyler asked. How many of them are there? Well, three men, two women. No idea how well armed they are. I encountered them harassing Nick a couple of weeks into the outage. I thought they left, but apparently they just found a good spot to make camp by Mill Pond. Oh, that's still hard to believe, said Tyler, all this time. How come we never saw or heard anything? I don't know. I only just found them, said Martin. As long as they were quiet and didn't have any exposed lights at night or obvious smoke. But they'd have to come out of there sometime, protested Tyler. 
unless they hiked in with three or four months' worth of everything. Now I'm guessing that they've been in and out, maybe only at night. Could be it was one of them that broke into the suspect's shed, scrounging for supplies. Is that what happened to our shed? Mrs. Hendrick asked Tyler. Here, Martin, have another biscuit. Martin didn't want another biscuit, but he knew it was hopeless to refuse. She would keep offering it until it was taken. Uh, why? What happened to your shed? Well, I thought the wood was just rotten and, and the hinges broke free. It's a really old shed. Uh, was anything missing? I couldn't tell you. Most of it was Keith's stuff, and I had no idea what he had in there. Charles thundered down the stairs. Okay, I got word to Gene, who got it to Berg, and he said he'd be right over. With a lot of guys, right? Martin prompted him. We'll need to surround that mill pond area so they can't just run out the back way. Yep, I think he'll have a good size posse. I'm pretty sure Gene got it. I told him we had a square dance situation to discuss right away. Square dance? Martin didn't conceal his scoff. That's all I could think of on short notice. Gene was telling me once about him and his brothers having to play security at a high school square dance when some bikers threatened to crash the party. I'm pretty sure he got it. Said he'd make sure to bring along some of his cowboys. You know, the mounted patrol guys. I hope you're right. Martin shook his head with doubt. Well, as if trying to get by in a grid-down world wasn't trouble enough, what do you do when you find out that criminals have set up their bug-out location in your backwoods? I'd like to give a shout-out to generous coffee buyers Anne, Hinsom, and Carol, and a hearty welcome to new Siege Club member Steve and the two new patrons on Patreon, MK and Ben. Thanks for your support.